You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Prashant Saltikal. Prashant is a consultant, author, professor, and managing principal of DBP Institute, a data analytics consulting and education company. He brings over 25 years of information management experience from over 75 companies, such as SAP, Shell, Apple, S&P, and GE. In addition, he has trained over 2,500 professionals the world over in analytics, data products, and enterprise performance management. He sits on the advisory board of EvalueServe in Switzerland and Grihasoft in India. Bridging the divide between technical features and business applications, he delivers educational materials that uniquely position the strengths and uses of data-related products and services. He is the author of two books, Data for Business Performance and Analytics Best Practices, and contributes regularly to Forbes.com and CFO University. He is an adjunct professor of data analytics at IE Business School in Spain, holds a PhD from ESC Lille in France, and an MBA from Kellogg School of Management in the U.S. Welcome to Absolute AI, Prasant. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Melody. It's a pleasure and a honor to be uh, to be part of your show. I'm looking forward for this conversation. Me too. So tell me a little bit about your background and when you be- first became interested in technology and data. Yeah, uh, you know, I was born and raised in India and I started my uh, career in, uh, in an engineering company in uh, Bangalore in India in 1996. And uh, that's where I got uh, introduced to technology because the company was implementing SAP, SAP which, is, uh, which is a leading ERP platform. And uh, that company in India happened to be one of the first companies in India to, uh, to go on SAP. So that's where I got exposed to technology. Then I was there in that company for three years and uh, I, uh, I quit the company to do my master's. Then after the master's, I went to Procter & Gamble in uh, uh, Brussels in Belgium. Uh, I was hired in the campus recruitment program and uh, I went to Belgium. I lived there for almost uh, three plus years and I came back to India and again joined uh, an Indian uh, uh, consulting company called Infosys. And uh, after that, I joined G and from G, I went to SAP and uh, from SAP it, uh, transferred me to Canada in 2009. And, um, and after a couple of years, uh, I went on my own and I started my firm, uh, DBP Institute, uh, to help companies leverage digital data and analytics technologies uh, in 2012. And since uh, 2012, it's been uh, the ninth year I've been running the company. It's been going on well. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, be- I, I want to ask you about that, but I also want to know: Did you uh, did you learn some French or uh, Dutch in Belgium? 
No. No. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, 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 the first couple of uh, months, I was just figuring out uh, whether to learn uh, Flemish or French uh -huh. because, uh, because Brussels was kind of bilingual. So I started with French. And um, after a, a, a few months, my boss, who, was up on, who is Flemish, was uh, encouraged me to take Flemish. Then I was also doing both. So I couldn't, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't juggle, uh, uh, juggle both the languages. So uh, I, I, can, I know a few words both in Flemish and uh, French, uh, uh -huh. but, uh, but I won't claim myself to be an, uh, uh, a great uh, speaker. Or, uh, <laughs> what, what's your favorite word in Flemish? Flemish, I would say, uh, which, uh, which means um, uh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, and uh, smaklek. Nice. Smaklek uh, stands for uh, yeah, have a nice meal. Bon appetit. Oh, smaklek. Cool. Tell me about your role as the founder and managing principal at DBP Institute and how you help clients transform technology and data into valuable business assets. Okay, so it's, uh, you know, the word DBP stands for Data for Business Performance, which is my first book, Data for Business Performance. I, I took the name from, uh, uh, from my first book. So basically what we do is we bring uh, digital data and analytics uh, together to help uh, companies get uh, monetizable business results. So the, uh, one of the things is to whom we offer this service. We have been focusing more on the small and medium-sized companies, somewhere between 10 million to 10 billion kind of companies, because the multinationals, the huge corporates, uh, they have been chased by these big four consulting companies and so on. So we want to, we want to create a niche and uh, focus on the small, medium companies, somewhere from 10 million to 10 billion. We call it a 10 to 10. Uh, that's one thing. Next, number two, we are focused on mainly on two major domains, which is uh, which is on uh, uh, supply chain and finance, which we call it as financial supply chain. So we focus, which is which I call order to cash, procure to pay, and all the finance and FP&A stuff. And of course, the third thing is about the domain itself, which is a combination of digital data and analytics. So that's what we do. So who, uh, what, what do we focus on? Then the next thing is we focus. What are our solutions or services? So we are broadly offering two major uh, uh, services. One is consulting, where we have 12 different services on digital data and analytics. And next number two is education, which is mainly about uh, the trainings which I offer, because we strongly believe education is a key, key enabler for change. If you're not, uh, if the education is not there, whatever the journey you are embarking on, the change management would be very tough. So we believe that one of the prerequisites to enable this change is education. So we want to help clients get more, uh, improve the data literacy in the community so that the technology or the solutions they're embarking on using digital data and analytics is much easier. Yeah, so in uh, one of your articles, you said that every company today is a data company, and hence every business person should be positioned as a citizen data scientist. Um, can you unpack that idea for me a little bit and how that relates to um, educating people and uh, decentralizing decision making within the companies? Yeah, sure. So you know uh, the amount of data that has been that's been collected these days is huge. Say they they say by 2025 the amount of data in a company is going to double every eight hours. So let's take a company for example which has been in existence from 1950 onwards till today. 
say, let's assume that hypothetically speaking, they have 10 terabytes of data, all their data put together in the company. That means for the last 70 years, they have captured almost 10, uh, 10 terabytes of data. Let's assume the company starts operations at 8 a.m. in the morning and at 5 p.m. they close their work. So that means in those eight hours in 2025, the amount of data is going to double. That is going to become 20 terabytes in eight hours. So what data they captured in 70 years is going to be looking very small compared to the data they are going to capture from now onwards. So having said this, every company is going to capture huge amounts of data coming from social media, you know, internet of things, uh, increased uh, uh, amount of data capture, whether it's structured or unstructured, so on and so forth. So that's one thing. So every company is, will have lots and lots of data. But I also said that data is a, definitely an asset, no dispute in this. But if you don't manage data well, it's a huge liability for a company yes. because your costs are going to go up, your, your risk is going to go up, your carbon footprint is going to go up, so on and so forth. So data is an asset only if you know how to manage it. If you don't know how to manage it, it becomes a liability. That's uh, another point which I want to say. Now, the third thing is, how do you, who are the best people to manage data, get the value out of data? Data fundamentally has got three main purposes. Number one, operations. Number two, compliance. And number three, in decision making. Mm -hmm. These are the three main functions of data. So who can leverage that uh, data? So that means people who are closest to data are the ones who are best positioned to leverage data. I call it as basically insights is equal to how intimate you are with your data what is the insights which you are uh, providing? And next, number three, how, uh, uh, what is the integrity? I call it as I equal to I cube. Impact equals to, uh, impact equals to intimacy times insights times uh, integrity. So these are the, this is my equation. And who are the ones who are best positioned to get that? People who are the one who are closest to data, who are right in front of the data, who are actually doing the business. So the cycle time is reduced, the cost is reduced, and the improved customer service is going to happen if you empower the people, if you train the people who with data and uh, digital and analytics uh, skills, uh, and then you can get value. So at a high level, this is what it is. How do you do it? It's a different uh, discussion altogether, but, it, <laughs> <laughs> but this is the spirit. <laughs> so, so let's go into that a little bit. Um, you've already identified some of these challenges, but how are you... Um, how do you start, you know, at the beginning of, of trying to overcome these, these challenges within a new organization that you're working with? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good question. So but every organization is different and uh, every uh, uh, challenge or opportunity which is presented to the organization is also different. Mm -hmm. So we have a philosophy, that's our differentiator as well, which is basically about think big, start small, go fast. So that's our philosophy. So given our small size of our company and also the, the clients we work are also not huge companies. They're not like a Walmarts or the shells of the world. They're also small companies. Uh, so we want to show some results quickly before we embark on an on a an, uh, multi-year uh, or a multi-million dollar transformational journey. So we start small. So how do we start that journey? So basically, uh, we have a methodology which is called as a reflective methodology, which is basically a combination of three major steps. One is listen, number two, analyze, next is recommend. So we do an engagement which is about four to six weeks for these companies and say, we will hear your problems. 
we will an analyze what the problems are, including the root causes, because often understanding the root causes is very important. And the third thing is we will recommend high level solutions and the target state architecture that's going to look like so that you can decide what should be the next steps. And this project typically takes about four to six weeks. So when I look at the listen, analyze and plan in simple words, it means what, what is the problem? Mm -hmm. So what? What is the impact of this problem? Yeah. And the third thing is now what? What are we going to do after we realize this is what the impact is? Tell me, how do we go forward from here? So this is what it is. What, so what, and now what? That's our methodology. And we just do it quickly. Within just a few thousand dollars, in a few weeks of uh, time, we just show the results. And the client also knows that, oh, oh my gosh, this is where we stand. This is what it's going to happen, mm -hmm. happen, so on and so forth. We have here a lot of buzzwords and some kind of platitudes as well. Data is oil, data is blood, data is oxygen, and all those things. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so we want to be a little bit practical and uh, sensible because the clients with whom we are working are also are also pressed for uh, money and time and everything. Just like, just like we are a small company, our clients are also small and medium enterprises. So we want to have a win-win partnership in this in this uh, journey. That's yeah, that's great. I feel like uh, equating also your own size with your client size really shows um, that that you're really in the same kind of empathetic position as they're in as a small company trying to leverage, you know, more limited resources and 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 being creative. Um, so uh, as you uh, one of the things that I that I read about of from your work, uh, one of the one of the struggles is um, a lack of stakeholder buy-in or like poor user adoption. So is that, um, do you find like in the listening phase and, and presenting to them, that's a way to mitigate that? Or, or how have you, what are the methods that you've used to, to kind of overcome this uh, resistance to change, even if it could be changed for the better? Yeah. A, a, a couple of tips or tricks I have in this. The, the, the first thing is uh, to look at the KPIs the company is currently concerned about because the KPIs change. The, what KPIs companies were managing before COVID is different during the COVID and now things are also changing given that I believe the COVID might be even behind us. So the KPIs keep on changing uh, uh, for the companies. The first thing is to understand uh, the what KPIs for this company uh, matters at this point in time. Next, number two, is also to look at the industry dynamics and look at the other companies within that sector. So like, for example, I call it as a knowledge continuum, where on one hand, one end of the spectrum, you have the data-centric companies, which are focused more on uh, data because they are inherently regulation-centric. They are focused on the market. They are focused on the commodities, so on and so forth. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have the insight-focused companies, which are focused more on the granular products, which are focused on the consumer, which are focused on personalization, so on and so forth. So we have the two ends of the spectrum when it comes to the knowledge continuum. So understand where, where these companies are actually fitting, because there is no point in preaching religion to a hungry man. We, we need to talk the right language and the right, uh, 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 right concerns for those kind of companies as well. So that's one thing which I use as well. KPI, the industry position or competitive landscape. Number two, the, the KPIs. 
And the third thing is about the impact. Like for example, just talking about data is the oil, data is oxygen, or uh, data is the greatest thing in the world. Uh, improve data quality because your productivity improves and all those things are okay. Everybody gets it. Uh, but the real thing is if you are able to quantify the problem or opportunity into hard cash, into tangible metrics, like the money saved, like the hours saved, so on and so forth, that's going to provide more valuable, to, more value to the company. Say, for example, if you say, oh, okay, you, uh, for a logistic company, we did a small work. Of course, it was not a small company. It was like almost like a ten billion, a nine billion dollar company. Uh, so we provided this work on a customer 360, and we said it's uh, because of the lack of customer 360, you are leaving 360 million dollars every year on the table. So, so they said, oh my gosh, so we, we need to work on this. Not that customer 360 means hyper personalization and all those things which you read in some theoretical uh, uh, magazine. So here we are saying that customer 360 is uh, is affecting your company and, uh, the, and the impact to the working capital is almost $360 million per year. Now everybody is, we are having some serious discussion, right, on the metrics, not some theoretical thing about uh, right. concepts or, uh, or thing. So that's another thing which I would say. I would give the third thing is link the KPIs to the to real tangible metrics. When you when you hear the KPI of the company is about solvency, about quick ratio, about working capital, and all those things, and if you give this number about three fifty million dollars, companies will say, yeah, tell us more about it. And you and you might have a very tough conversation because you are putting some tangible numbers on the on the plate, and you are right. uh, yeah. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. Yeah, uh, in one of your articles, you talked about how um, a lot of decisions are made either through analytics and data, or if you don't have that intuition, and then ideally you would have, you know, a mix of those. Um, what do you, what do you think the, the roles of, of those two are um, in decision-making? So, yeah, this is another thing where we are different from rest of the rest of the companies or the competition as well. Many companies take a unidimensional view, which, which says that data and analytics is the greatest thing in the world. I'm not disputing that. I, I make a living out of data and analytics. But at the same time, your field intelligence is also important. Your intuition is also important. You need to bring both of them together to make holistic decisions. So what's the purpose of data analytics? The data and analytics is to derive insights. For what? To improve decision making. So data and analytics is a means to an end. It is not the end in itself. What is the end? Better decisions. So if you're able to make better decisions through data analytics or through some uh, intuition or some astrology or whatever it is, so that's that's okay because ultimately what you need is good, good decisions. So in my view, the uh, decision making is a combination of two major things. One is your field intelligence, which is your existing body of knowledge, which could come from science, your experience, so on and so forth. And next, number two, which is your data analytics. So you need a combination of both. So that's why I gave a story of Walmart, where Walmart combined both their field intelligence and uh, and uh, data analytics and found that during the time of hurricane warnings, 
people are not just buying water, eggs, and bread. People are also buying strawberry Pop-Tarts, which came from data analytics. So now during the time of hurricane warnings, they are combining their existing body of knowledge or field intelligence and data analytics together to stock their shelves with milk, water, and eggs, plus strawberry Pop-Tarts. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah, for the next lockdown, I'll, I'll be sure to grab some Pop-Tarts. <laughs> the next lockdown are, 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 and the toilet papers. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so in your latest Forbes article, uh, Model Drift and Data Analytics, you cited a VentureBeat report that says 87% of data analytics projects never make it to production. Um, and you point to Model Drift uh, in data analytics as one of the main contributing factors. Um, talk to me about uh, what model drift is and how to mitigate it. Yeah, so, so model drift is basically what happens in analytics, especially predictive analytics, which includes analyst-driven predictive analytics such as regression and data-driven predictive analytics like machine learning. Lot of testing and development happens with the training set of data, which is not the real, which is not the real data. But when those after you test and say oh, everything looks good, then you deploy those models to production, things might change. So the accuracy of those insights during testing and development might be very different from the from the insights that has been or the results that is provided uh, during the production uh, environment. So it's a combination of two things uh, which are which are actually happening. Awesome. Can you talk me through a couple of the of the sources of data drift? So um, I think in the article you talked about um, concept drift and al algorithm drift as well, and how how those are um, contributing to this overwhelming uh, failure of getting getting models into production. Yeah, so basically model drift is, co is uh, caused by three major things. One is the data drift, number two, concept drift, and the third thing is the algorithm drift. So concept drift is basically, if you look at the uh, cause and effect, the cause is the, uh, is the input and the effect is actually the output. The cause, is called, the cause is called in the data science world, it is called as the independent variable, whereas the effect is called as a dependent variable. So if there is any changes that are happening in the causal variables or the independent variable, that kind of drift is called as the data drift, whether it's the increase in threshold or change in value, so on and so forth. If any changes happen in the dependent variable or which is the effect, that kind of changes or drifts are known as the concept drift. And the third thing is you use those two data thing to put it into an, into an algorithm or a model, which is, the, uh, which is the statistical model, say for example, regression or something, then the regression model itself changes, for example. Now I say y is equal to x1 plus x2 plus x3. Now it becomes y is equal to x1, x2, x3, x4, for example. So your model itself has changed because of all the thresholds and criteria which you have. That kind of changes is known as the algorithm drift. So model drift has got three main sources to uh, sources to uh, sources to look at. And when you are talking about this, this, these are the changes. And if you don't take care of it, these models are deployed to deployed to production, and they give really weird results. And uh, or things change, then uh, your credibility in that model is uh, is actually lost. Um, I would like to 
go back to a, uh, a topic that you brought up a little bit earlier, because I really enjoyed your article on uh, data as uh unfortunately, sometimes a liability because it goes against this assumption that we have that, you know, more is just always better. Um, so so tell me a little bit more about that. And perhaps you can talk through your uh, Cambridge Analytica example that I thought was great. Yeah. So, but, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, articles which have been uh, written about data as asset, data as oil, and all those things. True, it's all correct. Uh, but the but the fundamental default state, I would call it, of data is a liability. So mm-hmm. just just capturing and storing data doesn't make any company data driven. You need to use it. Use <laughs> it for what? You need to use it for the three things which I mentioned earlier operations compliance and uh, and uh, decision making now why why do you think just storing and uh, the capturing data becomes a liability for your organization there are four reasons for this the first thing being uh, the cost so the cost of uh, the digital technologies or the digital investments on a company in and an average company is increasing by almost like 3 to 5% uh, across the world and one of the reasons being more and more data is being captured and you need data to store, process, so on, and, uh, and even manage it uh, just on storage and capture perspective. Mm-hmm. So the cost is going up if you go blindly capture data because somebody told data is oil, somebody told uh, we need to become like Facebook, or uh, and uh, somebody said the cloud is cheap, all those things. If you go with that direction without looking at the ultimate business utility, you will end up with this increased cost. Next, number two, there is going to be increased, uh, uh, what I would say is uh, 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 jeopardization of your ESG metric. Because right now, the more data you capture, your uh, carbon footprint actually goes up. So today, the the big server farms of Google and uh, Facebook and Amazon might not be very big, uh, the carbon footprint of these companies. But uh, in the next few years, when we are capturing so much of data, their numbers are significantly going to go up. They say by 2025, uh, one of the biggest polluters in the world is the, is going to be the data centers. And that's why we yeah. see a lot, of, a lot of renewable energy investment going on from Google, Microsoft, and all these companies to reduce their carbon footprint. So that means if you blindly capture data, which is never used, they say 90% of the data in a company is dark data, which is unused, uh, which is unused data. So you will end up contributing to the carbon footprint for no for no reason apart from increased cost. Hmm. The third the third thing being increased risk. The more data you capture, though 90% of it is junk or dark data, you are you are attracting hackers. So the hackers don't uh, don't come to more, uh, small companies like mom and uh, pop shops. They go to big companies because they have a lot of data. And once they get into the company, they grab everything they can uh, they can access to. They don't see whether it's dark data or bright data. They grab everything. So that means the more data you have, the more attractive you become to the hackers. And the fourth thing, which you mentioned about privacy, about Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica came into limelight because of their work on uh, political analytics. And uh, But because they didn't manage their privacy aspects well, the Facebook uh, story, uh, they were actually, they ended up closing down. So it was data which brought them to the limelight, but it was the same data which resulted in their collapse and closure as well. So for those reasons, I say data is definitely an asset 
if you know how to manage it. If you just store and uh, capture and store it, it is actually a liability. And unfortunately, 90% of the data in the organizations, on an average organization, this is not my research, this is the research done by Carnegie Mellon and IBM, mm -hmm. they say it's dark data. Forrester also says a similar number. They say 73% of the data is dark data. So a lot of companies, that means majority of the data in the company is never used. So that means I strongly believe a lot of data in the company is, is a liability. They are, they are sitting on a huge liability, which they don't know, and a risk as well. So what, how would you define uh, good data or useful data or how do, you, how do you transform some of that dark data into something that is actually useful and then uh, try to mitigate uh, the creation of dark data, which, as you said, has uh, a lot of ramifications? Yeah, the, the first thing is purpose. Capture the data if you have a business reason for it. It could be immediate or it could be in the future, but it has to be tied to a business purpose, not because uh, not because uh, cloud is cheap, not because I attended a conference and uh, and uh, somebody said, oh, Facebook is making a lot of money because of the data they are capturing about you and me. Not that you capture your data because you need it. Like I was talking to a talking to a VP of an oil company. He says, tell me what I should do to become a company like Facebook. So I said, there is no comparison between your company and Facebook. Facebook is in a different industry, is in a different domain altogether. Right. If you have to compare your, your company, it has to be within that sector. See whether or even adjacent sector. No point in comparing an oil and gas production company, which is which is pulling oil from a pump jack, to Facebook or Amazon or uh, TripAdvisor. So that's one thing. The first thing is purpose. Next, number two is, uh, is uh, look at uh, transactions. Transactions are basically the acid test for data quality. So you might have master data, you might have reference data, so on. But if the transactions are not being used, so that means a lot of data is going to use stale data or unused data. So I was talking to a company, they have approximately half a million customer records. But in the last 18 months, they just did business with just 6,000 of them. So half a million of data, which is there, which is unused, but only 6,000 are really active. So that means why do you need those half a million? Do you want to do still business with them? Or if you, if you don't want, just purge them, so on and clean that data. So look at transactions. So transactions are basically important for three main reasons, because they have a financial value, they bring compliance and relationship, and there is a twofold exchange between the counterparties. So focus on transactions. The less number of transactions you have, that means uh, better it is. So you might have half a million customer records, so that means, and only 6,000 are used, so that means 98% of the data which you have is basically dark data on the customer mm -hmm. masters. Yeah, so I would focus on, uh, I would focus on uh, transaction, uh, transactional thing. And lastly, about education, educating people about data literacy, telling them about importance of uh, dark data, importance of carbon footprint, importance of uh, purpose, importance of how to use data for decision making, so on and so forth. So all those things about education. So these are the three major tips which I have. Of course, I've written a lot in uh, Forbes about uh, yes. that as well. That as well, people can read more. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you've also published two books, uh, Data for Business Performance and Analytics best practices. Um, and we'll link to those in the show notes for people who are interested. Um, 
you have uh, published those a couple of years ago, um, and you have a little space from writing those now. Are there certain uh, practices or ideas that feel even more relevant now that you have some space from those projects? Yeah. So, so Melody, you are asking, uh, so what have I learned from those two books? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, what has stuck with you? I mean, the process of writing a book, right? You're you're diving deep, you're figuring things out, but now you have a little bit of space from them. And then I I, I find with my larger writing projects that that something uh, there's like a kernel that that I go, oh man, I really found something there. So so what what stuck with you? Yeah. So, but one thing is, if you have to look at the first book, Data for Business Performance, with the reason why I wrote us. Uh, is basically to leave a legacy at that time. So, uh, uh, to uh, uh, and I always wanted to write a book, and uh, I just finished a big project. So I, I was I was between projects. So I had time, and uh, the publisher also came to me a good good one. So uh, so the time, the right publisher. So it was all about timing. So it was good. So I just wrote this book. I took about one and a half years to write it, uh, but the it it was it was a good thing. So the initiation started when I was just finished the project. So I just embarked on it, and I had some time during this whole one and a half year period. I I just wrote it. So the driver for that is one thing is to leave a legacy. Next number two, in in the projects which I worked before, what I realized was that uh, data was one of the fundamental things that is required to for operations compliance and decision making. So how do you get good quality data? So I wrote this in the, and I also realized that it's not the techies or the IT department, which is responsible for data. We need the business people to understand the value of data. So I, I wrote it in plain, simple English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my first book. Then after that, I wrote my second book, which is last year which was uh, uh, since I had this experience of writing the first book and uh, I wrote it again for the business audience to look at the constant patterns or anti-patterns I would say in the in my experience and in my readings and everything on what companies can do to get value out of data analytics. What are some of the things that they can implement it quickly and get value out of it? There are so many of them. I just picked the top 10 in this uh, in my book, which is analytics best practices. Then the, what has stuck to me right now is about the third uh, step, which is the output of analytics. So the input for analytics is data, which is my first book. Then you have analytics. Then the output for analytics is insights, which is used for decision making. So right now I've been thinking more about decision science and all those things, reading a lot on that. So that's what I'm working on. Wonderful. Um, if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, what would the world look like and have the robots taken over? It is going to be, uh, I think it's going to be uh, more uh, uh, complicated, I would say. But at the same time, uh, one of the things which I think would remain constant, which is today or uh, on 2040 or 2050, is uh, uh, ability to adapt to change. Uh, so if there is w- one uh, skill of which, uh, which, which I am developing in the last uh, uh, 25 years of my experience is to how to cope up with change. Uh, I think there's going to be more and more changes coming at a much, much faster rate. So the more skilled you are in, in adapting yourself to that change, 
whatever it is, however the technology is going to evolve or whatever the business disruptions are, so the better it's going to be for you, for you and for everybody. So I think uh, the, that's where I would focus on in uh, in how to how to manage change and uh, how to adapt to that change. And what are some of the some of your secrets for adapting to change? Hmm. What works for you? Uh, the the first thing is uh, I think probably the the one thing I would say is uh, uh, or two things I would say. One is to be grateful to what you have. Uh, so yeah, there are so many things which I don't have, but a couple of things I have, and uh, so uh, <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. Next, number two is uh, have a kind of a goal saying that uh, this is what you are working on so that you are not distracted by this uh, short-term failures which you see. So if you know that for the next one year or next two years, this is what you are working on, come what may. So you will come. Okay, this is what happened in this uh, in this process. Something has gone wrong. But overall, this is what I'm going on. I think the, uh, that might also uh, work. But, you know, I'm not an expert in that. I, this is what I believe in and I'm working on it. I'm also learning in this uh, journey. Uh, when I say being grateful and having a goal, my goal is also, uh, I'm also adapting to that goal and uh, the learning from there. But uh, this is what I think uh, are uh, two ways to cope up with change. Wonderful. Um, let's wrap up with some calls to action. Um, how can people reach out to you and learn more about you? So, LinkedIn is the best way to reach out to me. In fact, we also connected through LinkedIn as well. Yeah. As well, so LinkedIn, I'm active in LinkedIn, uh, so people can reach out to uh, reach out to me via LinkedIn, and there we we can start from there through emails, phone numbers, Zoom calls, and everything. So that's a that's a first thing. And of course, people can also get my two books and uh, and uh, get to know more about uh, me and what I believe in. And of course, there's a bunch of blogs which I've written in for Forbes as well as in CFO.university because that's what our uh, focus is on, financial supply chain. So that's why I write in uh, CFO.university, Supply Chain Canada uh, and uh, FPNA Trends, which is a financial uh, planning and analysis trends. So I write in those blogs in those places so people can Google these websites and uh, get to know more about my my thoughts, my ideas, and everything. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Absolute AI today. It was a, a real pleasure. Uh, thanks, uh, Melody. Thanks for your time and great questions. And uh, looking forward to uh, for the uh, to be in touch with the community and uh, and help in whatever way I, I can. Absolutely. Well, thank you for all of your help with educating the public. It's so important so that we can all progress together. <laughs> sure. All right. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars.